Uh, well, friends, uh, I'm not sure how good your eyes are, but uh, this is the time of year I usually go and get my eyes checked. Uh, you know, I go to my optometrist, and uh, he makes me read these little letters, uh, you know, on, on a lighted-up screen in the back. Uh, he, he takes me to another room uh, where... Uh, You know, there's this little machine that blows a puff of air in your eyes. I hate that machine, Um, but it it measures uh, the pressure of my eyes. And at the end of uh, all that, uh, my optometrist tells me whether my eyes are healthy or not and uh, whether or not I need new glasses so that I can see properly. Uh, This year was a particularly um, depressing one for me because uh, he told me that I needed bifocals, uh, which uh, apparently are what old people wear. But uh, good eyesight is such an important thing, isn't it? Uh, Not only is it important for things like reading and writing and other important tasks, but it's important in giving you direction so that you can go from place to place. You know, if you are blind, uh, it's very hard to get you to your destination, isn't it? And uh, I want to suggest to you uh, this morning as we uh, open up this part of God's Word that the big idea in this morning's passage is that of spiritual eyesight. That of spiritual eyesight. Uh, If you were here last Sunday, uh, we began a new series looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, if you remember, we saw that uh, that Paul praises God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, heavenly places, and revealing to us his breathtaking plans to unite all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ on the last day. But notice that in today's passage, Paul prays for his Christian readers. And he prays that they will have good spiritual eyesight. Uh, You can see it there in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul prays that these are... Uh, Christians around Ephesus will have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eyes of your hearts enlightened. Uh, He's speaking metaphorically here, of course. The eyes that he's speaking about are not physical eyes. Uh, And the heart is not the physical thing that pumps blood around the body. Neither is it the emotion of love, which is uh, how we often understand the symbol of the heart, isn't it? Uh, Think about, you know, the I love or I heart New York t-shirts that everyone seems to be wearing these days. But in the Bible, the heart represents how you see the world. It's about the real you. It's about what's going on inside you. It's about what you think. It's about what you feel. It's about those inner desires that drive your life in a particular direction. And so you see, Paul prays that these Christians around Ephesus will have good spiritual eyesight. He, he prays for an increasing change of heart. And, and that makes sense, doesn't it? For we cannot grasp the great blessings of God, the spiritual blessings of God that Paul has just spoken about, and we cannot live a changed life that is in conformity to God's plans and his will unless we are growing 
in this spiritual eyesight, this change of heart that Paul is speaking about. Uh, How is your spiritual eyesight at the moment? Has God been changing uh, the eyes of your heart so that you are seeing God and his plans for this world clearly? Well, uh, just before we get to the things that Paul prays for uh, these Christians around Ephesus, you can see there that he begins this section by giving thanks to God. By giving thanks to God. Uh, One of the things you will find in the New Testament is that Paul's prayers uh, are always accompanied by thanksgiving. Uh, It's a bit like salt and pepper. Uh, They always go together. He prays for them, uh, but uh, there's also thanksgiving. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, This is what he says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Uh, Why does Paul ceaselessly give thanks for these people? Well, it's because they are genuine Christian people. You can see it there in verse 15 where he begins by saying or using the phrase, for this reason. Uh, The reason is what we saw last week. Uh, It's that these people that Paul is writing to have been tremendously blessed by God. And that these largely Gentile Christians have been given the Holy Spirit uh, as a seal and as a deposit of what is to come. But you notice there that Paul also gives thanks because he sees evidence in their lives that they are truly Christian people. Uh, He's heard, notice, that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's also heard that they also have love for all the saints, uh, which is just another term for all Christians. In other words, what you see in these Christians is not only a vertical faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also display a horizontal love towards the Christians around them. You see, friends, what is the evidence that a person is a genuine Christian person? Is it that they come to church regularly? Is it that they have a Christian heritage because their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents were Christian? Is it that they wear outward symbols of Christianity like uh, you know, jewellery in the shape of a cross? Well, no. The evidence of a genuine Christian person is the love that they have for all the saints. The love that they have for all the saints. Uh, Now, I think that an important word there is the word all. And Ephesians speaks much more about this in later chapters, but I think that this is a message that a congregation like church at nine needs to hear over and over again Uh, you see it is very easy to be a member of a multicultural kind of congregation like ours and simply seek to love the people who are like us is that true that's very easy for the koreans to love other koreans (laughs) It's very easy for the subcontinentals to love other subcontinentals, the parents to love other parents, the young workers to love other young workers. 
And that's all well and good, and I'm glad that you have good relationships with the people in this church. But listen to the reason why Paul gives thanks to this particular group of Christians in Ephesus. It's not simply that they professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's because this was worked out in a love for all the saints. For all the saints around us. However, notice that the source of this faith and love is God himself. You see, that's why Paul gives thanks to God here for the Christians around Ephesus. Notice he doesn't go around congratulating these Ephesian Christians for their faith and for their love. But he gives thanks to God because he knows that this kind of faith and this kind of love find their origin and source in God. And so, uh, if you find that you are a Christian person uh, and you trust in Jesus, but you are lacking love, then pray to God and ask him that you would show love for other people. You know, God delights in giving his people such things when we ask him. Or if you see other Christian brothers and sisters around you growing in their love for all the saints, then encourage them certainly, but give thanks to God for them and pray that they would do so more and more. Now friends, uh, in the next section of our passage, uh, Paul goes on to pray for the Christians around Ephesus. Uh, Now prayer is simply asking God for things. Uh, It's a little bit more than simply speaking with God. It's actually asking God for things, trusting him that as our Heavenly Father, he will give good things to those who ask. But what does Paul ask for these Christians around Ephesus? Well, you can see there that he asks for knowledge. He asks for knowledge. And he asks that they will know two things in particular. Uh, The first thing is that they will know God. He asks that they will know God. Uh, Of course, the Christians around Ephesus had come to know God already when they put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. But here, Paul prays that God will help them to grow uh, in their knowledge of God. You can see it there in verse 17, can't you? Uh, Have a look with me at verse 17. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. Uh, You know, in the Bible, knowing someone is about more than simply knowing some information about that person, isn't it? Uh, I don't know about uh, whether whether you've met any celebrities uh, before. Hands up if you've met a celebrity in your life before. Um, A number of us. Uh, I've met very few celebrities uh, in my life. Um, But I remember once meeting uh, Bob Hawke, who was uh, one of our previous prime ministers. Uh, He came to our local shopping centre. And, uh, uh, you know, I I don't remember too much about the event, but I remember standing next to him. I'm sure we exchanged a few words. Um, And I also knew some things about him. I'd read about things like he drank a lot of beer and things like that from the newspapers and and books. And yet, 
It's a little bit far-fetched to say that I know Bob Hawke, isn't it? You'd think I'm a little bit strange if I went up to you and said, uh, I know Bob Hawke. You see, in order to truly know someone, you need a personal relationship with that person where that person reveals himself or herself to you, reveals what they are really like. And so that's why Paul prays here that God the Father would give to these Ephesian Christians his spirit. For it is the spirit of God who helps us to know God and helps us to know his plans and his purposes for this world. Now that's why the spirit here is referred to as the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. It is a spirit who lets us in on God's wisdom, which is all about God's work in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a spirit who reveals to us, as we saw last week, the, the mystery of his plans and his purposes for this world to unite all things under the lordship of Jesus. Now, friends, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I find Paul's prayer here utterly, utterly extraordinary. Uh, Why do I think that? Well, uh, you might remember last week that Paul, in the opening part of uh, the letter to the Ephesians, praises God... Uh, for giving us every spiritual blessing. And then he praises God that God has revealed to us uh, his plans and his purposes for this world, that everything should come under the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. And so, in the light of these great plans and purposes of God, what would you expect Paul to say is the greatest need of these Christians and certainly our greatest need. Well, if it were me, I might have said something like evangelism. You know, our greatest need is to get get out there and share the gospel with as many people as possible. And that's what I would have prayed for these Christians. Or I might have said that it is personal godliness. You know, uh, if we are to take part in God's plans and his purposes for this world, then uh, I've got to get my act together and grow in my godliness so that I can actually be fit uh, for such a task. But notice, friends, that Paul doesn't pray for any of these things. Rather, he prays that these Ephesian Christians would know God better and better in their lives. For you see, it is by knowing God that the eyes of our hearts will be changed so that we will live lives according to God's plan and purpose. I know that we all have different circumstances uh, in our lives, but brothers and sisters, I want you to see very clearly this morning that what God says to you and me is that our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need, is to know God better in your life. Some of us are facing difficult circumstances, and we may think that our greatest need is is for God to remove those circumstances in our lives. But God, he says, that your greatest need is to know him better. Some of us might be grieving the loss of loved ones or the loss of something uh, else in our lives. 
And we might think that our greatest need is to know um, the, the fleeting pleasures of this world, to feel that loss and to feel that pain. And yet God says this morning that your greatest need is to know him better. Uh, Others of us are are new to our church, and you may think that your greatest need is to be a part of a loving community which will love you and embrace you. And I really do hope that you find that here at our church. But even more than that, God says to you this morning that your greatest need is to know God better. Friends, are you investing your time and your energy and your resources into knowing God better in your lives? For us who live after the time of the apostles, we can only know God better by knowing God's word in the Bible better and learning to live out the things that we see there. God says that this is the greatest need of your life. And of my life. And so, are you making this a priority? Or are you more interested in knowing other things that often take the place of God? Uh, an English pastor by the name of Richard Kirken, uh, whose commentary on Ephesians I've been finding very helpful, uh, writes these challenging words. He says, How desperately sad, then, that we can acquire so much knowledge in our professional life and can have so many friends, close friends that we know well and yet settle for knowing God only superficially. Whatever else we pray for other Christians, let us make sure that we pray that they and we may know God better. However, friends, uh, the second thing that Paul prays for after he prays that they will know God better Uh, the second thing that Paul prays for these Christians around Ephesus is that they will not only know God, but that they will know God's plans for them and for the world. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 18. Uh, Verse 18, Paul prays that they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Uh, Now, there are a number of things that Paul mentions here. Uh, Firstly, can you see that he mentions hope? Uh, He prays that these Christians will know the hope to which God has called them. Uh, When we think about the word hope, uh, I wonder whether we naturally uh, think about, or or we we often use it... uh, almost as a, as a synonym for wishful thinking, uh, wishful thinking about the future. Uh, we say things like, uh, I hope the weather will be not too hot this week. Uh, we're kind of expressing a desire that it will not be too hot, but we don't actually know whether or not our desire will eventuate. However, the Bible doesn't use the word hope like this, for Christian hope is a certain hope. It's a sure hope. It's bound to happen because God has guaranteed that these things will happen. But what is the object of this hope? What is it that 
Christians been called to? What hope have Christians been called to? Uh, well, you can see there, secondly, that it is a hope of inheritance. Uh, Paul prays that the Christians around Ephesus will know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. In, uh, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel looked forward to inheritance in the promised land, didn't they? However, in the New Testament, we're told that our inheritance is not some sort of physical land in the Middle East, but it is the promised land of heaven itself. Uh, You will notice that Paul has already referred to this heavenly inheritance uh, back in verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11, where he says that we have obtained an inheritance. And uh, again in uh, verse 14, which speaks about our inheritance which we will one day acquire possession of. However, friends, if you look very carefully at our passage this morning, you will see that Paul is not speaking about our inheritance here, but rather he's speaking about God's inheritance. In verse 18, notice that Paul speaks about the riches of whose glorious inheritance? Well, it's his glorious inheritance, God's inheritance. And what is God's inheritance? Well, or those who are Christians, who belong to God. In other words, friends, your hope is that when we get to heaven, you and I, together with all other Christian people in this world and down through the ages will be God's inheritance, God's uh, prized possession, people who are valued, treasured by God. It's an astort, isn't it? For you see, the great thing about heaven is not that we will receive an inheritance from God, as true and as good as that is, but it is the idea that in heaven, God will love us and treasure us and prize us for all of eternity. For we are his valuable inheritance. Uh, But here's the thing. Uh, None of that will matter if God has no power to get us to that destination. Is that true? And so the final thing that Paul mentions there is God's power. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 19, he prays that these Christians around Ephesus will know the immeasurable greatness of his, that is God's power, toward us who believe. Uh, You can see that God's power is the theme of uh, this last part of the prayer. For notice that Paul piles on the language of power. Uh, You can see it in words like power and work and might piled one on top of the other. However, notice that this power that is now at work in the lives of Christians is the same power that has been at work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul there mentions two specific ways in which this power can be seen in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Number one, you can see this in his resurrection from the dead. Uh, You'll notice there in verse 20 that Paul says that God's power is at work in the Christians around Ephesus, um, that that power is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see, friends, for all the technology 
and for all the sophistication and for all the power of this modern age, mankind or humankind has not been powerful enough to defeat death. Many of you will know the utter helplessness and powerlessness we feel when someone close to us dies. And yet, there has been a power that has defeated death. It is the power of God that he worked in Jesus Christ when with his mighty strength he rose him bodily from the grave. It is a power that is immeasurably great. It is a power that is mighty in its strength. And Paul prays that the Christians in Ephesus will know more and more of this power that is at work in their lives. Number two, you can see God's awesome power in the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. For in uh, verse 20 again, Paul says that God has not only raised Jesus from the dead, but that he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, friends, God, in his great power, has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, The right hand is symbolic of great. The heavenly places is the spiritual realm. And so Jesus is ruling over all things in the spiritual realm. Christians do not need to live in fear of Satan and of demons and the spiritual forces of evil, which are real and which are exerting their influence in this world. For Jesus has every power and authority over them. But it's not just the spiritual realm, is it? For God has actually put all things under Jesus' feet, such that there is no power in all of creation that is more powerful than him who sits on the throne. Uh, When I was a student, I had this uh, little car, this little red car that had very little power. Uh, Sometimes when I had friends in the car, we would struggle to get up a hill. Uh, I often had to turn off the air conditioning so that the car would have enough power to make it over a hill. Uh, It was embarrassing when I was dating my wife because I was never sure whether I could get her home or not in this car. Uh, It's quite stressful not knowing whether you have enough power to get to your destination. However, Paul speaks here about the power of God that will never fail believers. It is this power that is work that is at work in you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this power that will lead you to God's heavenly inheritance. And staggeringly, it is this power that is currently at work in the church, notice, in those last few verses. As the Lord Jesus Christ rules over his church through his word and fills his church with good gifts. 
for the church or the gathering of God's people occupies a very high place uh, in God's plans for this world. But more of that in coming weeks. But here, the thing to notice is that Paul prays that these Christians around Ephesus will know God's plans for them as well as his power, that he is a powerful God, powerful enough to fulfill these plans that he has made. Uh, I don't know whether you've watched the television series called Friday Night, Life, uh, Friday Night Lights. Has anyone seen Friday Night Lights? Uh, one, one person. Um, I think I watch too much TV these days. Uh, It's about a small American town which is obsessed with uh, American football. Uh, Now, I don't know anything about American football other than they wear, you know, funny helmets. But there's a famous line in that that series uh, used by the football team, uh, and it's become very well known. Um, Before every match, this football team kind of huddled around and uh, they uh, shouted these words to each other. They, they said, Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Uh, I wonder whether they got that from Ephesians 1. <laughs> for in a spiritual sense, that's what Paul is praying for here, isn't it? He wants these Christians around Ephesus to have clear spiritual eyes. He wants these Christians to have full hearts, full of the knowledge of God and his plans. And that's why he prays for them, that they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. For he knows that if their spiritual eyes are clear, and if their hearts are full of the knowledge of God, then they cannot lose, and that they will be part of his plans and his purposes for this world. Uh, One of the challenges of this prayer of Paul's is whether the things he prays for are the things that you and I pray for. Uh, I wonder whether Paul's priorities, which are really God's priorities, aren't they? I I wonder whether his priorities are actually your priorities and my priorities and the things that drive our prayers and our requests to God. What are the things that you and I tend to pray for? Um, think back to uh, your growth groups and uh, meeting together with other Christians. Uh, what have been the things that you've prayed for together as you've met in those groups? Uh, most of the time, I think we pray that God will change our circumstances so that we'll be a little bit happier and a little bit more comfortable in our lives. I wonder whether that's true for you. But Paul says that your greatest need And my greatest need is to know him better and to deeply know his plans and purposes for this world. And so, brothers and sisters, will you pray this for others that you know? And will you pray this for yourself? Will you pray this for me? I think this is a great prayer, and I would love anyone who prays this prayer for me. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Uh, We thank you that as we've listened in on Paul's prayer, we can see something of your priorities for us and for the world. 
Uh, We thank you that in our church we have so many people who display a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus that is worked out in a love for all the saints. I thank you that this is your work and that you will powerfully bring this work to completion on the last day. And Father, we ask and pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know you better and to know your plans for us and for this world better and better in our lives. We pray that as we grow deeper in our knowledge of you, that you would change us and help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, proclaiming Jesus as Lord as you work through all things to unite all things under his feet. And uh, we pray that before that last day comes, uh, many of our family and friends and work colleagues and people in distant countries that we have not even heard of will come to know you and to praise you for your glorious grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.